I threw a change up at, at you, as it were. Everyone's ready with the clap, 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 clap. No, no, no. It's the charge. Um, you're welcome. People, some of you are like, if we have to clap one more time. I'm, well, um, as we have been starting this morning off, I, I just want to say that I think there's a direction. It's so intentional that the Holy Spirit leads us. In the songs we sang today, as a team, we had pre-service prayer and walk through. And there's this, it's like God just knew exactly what was coming. And he's up to something. And and as we sang that song that says, I speak Jesus for my family. Um, There's some in this room, you've been standing in the gap for your family. We talked about standing in the gap last week. And you've been standing in the gap for your family. Do not give up the fight. We speak Jesus. And I believe that God is going to do the miraculous, the restorative that we can't do on our own. Amen. Amen. Well, we are jumping into the word today, but before I do, I want to give you an update regarding the leadership and direction of our children's ministry. Um, Our church elders and myself have taken the last several weeks, uh, I'm getting a little bit of ring there, John, if it's all right, Uh, the last several weeks to carefully consider how we should best move forward as a church and um, and in our children's ministry, and we've carefully considered how, how that should be executed. And after much prayer and evaluation, we've come to the decision that uh, a change in our children's ministry leadership is the right direction for us moving forward. Um, we're so thankful for the time and the heart that Charity has served our children with, and we believe that God has already, though, been orchestrating our steps as we look to the future in our ministry. We're, we're thrilled that Shelley Stafford has stepped into the role of interim children's ministry director, and she has done it and, and, and done such a tremendous job of pouring into the team, investing in our leaders, um, and building excitement and vision. Uh, I, I hope I'm not embarrassing you, Shelley, when I say she has, in three weeks, she brought on or reinstated 18 uh, children's uh, volunteer team members, 18 in this last three weeks. There's been this just infusion of excitement and energy in our kids' ministry. And uh, with Shelly's leadership, we never missed a step, but rather I think we've accelerated to another level of quality and purpose. And so I ask, church, for your continued support and prayer for our children's ministry and our team as we pursue God's direction as we look to the future. All right? So thank you so much. I, I appreciate you taking a moment to hear that update. Now, to pivot into our series here, what picture or memory perhaps comes into mind when you hear the word fortress okay for some of you you've been on a vacation and you've gone to like castles in europe or maybe you think of forts you made as a kid um things like that um i remember getting into bed as a child bed is the safe zone um i i never participated in track and field but i think i could have done the long jump because when I turned off the light, the distance from the light switch to my bed, I did not touch the ground. I could clear it by the time the lights were out. I did not touch the floor. And then, then I was safely in bed. Anybody else that's like the safe when you're under the covers? And, and if a foot comes out, that's, that's a loss. That's, that's, someone's going to grab that. Um, now as a grown-up, I'm not as afraid of the dark. And that's actually my thermostat. If I get too warm, you stick one foot out. And it's good. Um, but... Uh, but we have these places that we call our, 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 our fortresses. We think of they're kind of our places of safety. Uh, the other day, my wife wanted to have a talk with me about how childish I can be, but she didn't know the password to my pillow fort, so she couldn't get in. And so uh, we had to put off that talk. <clears throat> but we all, have, we all have those places, those items, 
Uh, perhaps it's a literal place for you. Perhaps it's an item that's of, of comfort or those people that give us the feeling of security when we're with them. Um, and we're going to talk about that a little bit today. If you have your Bibles, open them with me to the book of Nahum, um, or you perhaps are on the Bible app, which is great because, like I said, there are a lot of verses we're going to be referencing today. Nahum chapter 1, verse 1 says this. This message concerning Nineveh came as a vision to Nahum, who lived in Elkosh. All right, we're going to stop there. We'll get a little context here. Nahum was a prophet that lived during the 7th century B.C. Um, he, uh, he prophesied around the year 615 about uh, what would happen in Nineveh and Assyria. And we don't know exactly where Elkosh is that he mentions there. No one's really found that location. Um, some theorize, and I think it's for good reason, that it was in what was later called Capernaum. Because Capernaum literally translated means the house of Nahum. Which to me is like, ah, oh, it's a pretty good sign. I don't know. But, uh, uh, so, so Nahum is from kind of the area of where Israel would have been, but they were taken in captivity again to Assyria. So Nahum opens up by kind of giving this brief introduction and then he jumps into this vision that he had. And so we'll go down to verse two here. It says this, the Lord is a jealous God filled with vengeance and rage. He takes revenge on all the all who oppose him and continues to rage against his enemies. Okay, so Nahum doesn't really like soften things as he opens up. He he jumps right into it. He's like, okay, get this. God's angry. He's real mad. And he rages. And and so this kind of actually, to be honest with you, sets the tone for much of the book of Amos. It's about God's vengeance and his justice that's going to come down on Assyria and on Babylon. And so, uh, or I mean on Nineveh, sorry, on Nineveh and the empire of Assyria. Now, now God didn't just happen to wake up on the wrong side of the bed this day. It's not like Nahum had this vision. He's like, whoa, we really caught God on a bad day. This one, this one's not good, guys. No, God, because look what how he follows it up in verse 3. He's echoing Exodus 34. And remember, almost every one of the minor prophets we've studied have this almost exact phrasing. It's amazing how it's woven through every one of the minor prophets. He says this, the Lord is slow to get angry, but his power is great and he never lets the guilty go unpunished. He's slow to get angry. Remember, the, God is not flying off the handle. He's not out of control. He's slow in his anger and his bringing of, of judgment. But yet, there is judgment that's coming. You see, 150 years earlier, you might remember back, way back to the beginning of summer, when there was so much hope at the beginning of summer, right? And, uh, and I preached on Jonah. And Jonah was called by God to go to this same place, to Nineveh, to preach to them that God's judgment was coming. And they repented. The Ninevites repented, they put on sackcloth and ashes, they even dressed their goats and their dogs in sackcloth and ashes, and they said, God, we are so sorry, and they were repentant. But 150 years later, things had happened, they had taken Israel into captivity, and they had turned away from God. They had chosen their own way, and, and they had returned to their sin. And so, Nahum is kind of like a sequel to Jonah. Jonah is 150 years earlier, Nahum is the sequel of God's judgment that does eventually come to Assyria. You see, Assyria was one of the great, the earliest great empires of the, the world had ever seen. It was, it was phenomenal. Its capital, it sat in a strategically really important position on the banks of the Tigris River. There was this eastern bank it sat on, and anyone crossing that had to go through Nineveh, so it became very wealthy and powerful. And it sat at where modern-day Mosul is. We, did, we hear that in the news a lot, right? About the, the wars going on there, and ISIS and things like that, and how actually ISIS was destroying... 
items of antiquity that were found right around there where Assyria would have been. They were blowing these things up, destroying these things. This is where this occurred. And so um, it had grown very powerful and it was strongly fortified. Sennacherib had built a wall around the entire city. He enclosed an area of 1,950 acres inside the wall. That uh, An acre is roughly the size of a football field. If you think you're enclosing 2,000 football fields inside of a wall, a defended wall, that's massive. That's massive. And so they built this wall around the city. It's this huge fortress. And, uh, and since Nineveh was right on the banks of the Tigris, Sennacherib also built a series of canals and aqueducts and dams that would handle, if there was an unexpected amount of rainfall that came, it could handle uh, floods that came along. And so they were very secure. There were 18 gates around the city, and it was a very secure city, this fortress, that undoubtedly any normal person would put their trust in, and for good reason. I would feel pretty safe there, um, especially in terms of the day's technology and warcraft. It was practically impenetrable. You could not get into this city. And people tried, but it was, it was not a doable thing. Yet, despite that, God promises he's going to overthrow the Assyrians. Look at Nahum chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. This is what the Lord says. Though, though the Assyrians have many allies, they will be destroyed and disappear. O oh, my people, I have punished you before. But I will not punish you again. Now I will break the yoke of bondage from your neck and tear off the chains of Assyrian oppression. So this is interesting language that God is using about setting his people free. He says, I'm going to break the yoke of bondage. Break the yoke of bondage. Now, this isn't just a metaphor. This is quite literal. The Assyrians would put literal yokes on their captors as a means of humiliation and control. Um, this is a, an image here. This is a relief that was uh, from the Balawat Gate in the Assyrian Empire. It was made in the year 860. And it's showing these captors being led away um, into bondage. And you can see they have yokes around their neck. And this was a way that they made them feel, uh, just humiliate them and, and control them. And so the Israelites were most likely very literally had yokes put around their necks as they were taken into captivity. So when Nahum prophesies this, he says the yoke of captivity is going to be broken. It's a literal breaking of that yoke. So um, Nahum prophesies this and how it's going to happen in verse 8. And he says this, But he, being God, will sweep away his enemies in an overwhelming flood. He will pursue his foes into the darkness of night. Now the Hebrew that reads, He will sweep away her place. He will sweep it away. And this is profound because the very place that Nineveh put all its security in its walls and its prosperity there and its power, that would actually be its downfall. Because an overwhelming flood um, would happen in the year 612 BC. God told Nahum about this. This flood came through down the Tigris and it, uh, uh, it, it decimated their infrastructure there. About two and a half miles of Nineveh's walls were undermined by this raging water that came under it. It made it so that it, it had crumbled and it made an access point for the Babylonians and the Medes to come in and overthrow the Assyrian Empire. And so God literally prophesies this by saying he's going to sweep them away with an overwhelming flood. So Nahum sees this. He has, sees a prophetic word. And this flood comes through. And all that they had put their hope in. All that they had put all their technology in. The, the greatest empire in the world fell in a matter of days because of this flood that undermined what they thought they had strength in. So while all this chaos is happening. While, while nations are falling. Um, despite the fact they may be your greatest enemy. When... when the greatest source of kind of global stability, as it were, the, the country that's running everything, falls. 
You've got to feel like the world is being upended. And so God says this to his people in verse 7. Look at this. Nahum 1, 7. The Lord is good. A strong refuge when trouble comes. He is close to those who trust in him. I love that. I love that this is the verse right before Nahum prophesies that Nineveh, the mightiest fortress in the world, is going to fall, right? In the very next verse, he tells that there's a flood coming and it's going to wipe them out. But he starts this off by saying, the Lord is good. He is a mighty fortress. He's close to those who trust in him. He, I, I, I really, the, each word is so important here. Verse 7 starts by asserting the nature of God. He says, the Lord is good. And all the time, he is good. Amen? He's not changeable. He's good. That's just his nature. He's not fickle. He's not inconsistent. You don't have to convince God to be good. Can you just be good for me, God, please? Can you be good to me, please, Lord? I really need it right now. God is good. God is, it's in his nature. He is good. And and it's not that we have to uh, do a certain kind of things in a certain order to get God's attention or make him into a a good, uh, loving being. It's who he is. And then it goes on. It says he is a strong refuge when trouble comes. There's an important word there, and that's when. It's not if trouble comes. It says when trouble comes. Difficulty, challenges, and pain are unavoidable parts of life, aren't they? Trouble will always find its way to us. And being a believer doesn't exclude us from pain, as much as I would like to say that. That when we trust God, He just wipes everything out of the way, and we just kind of cruise on through, you know, and then... Right up to the pearly gates and it's all done. You know, just that's, that's how life is. But no, there's, there's trouble, challenges, and pain are unavoidable parts of life. Uh, Job 5.7 says, People are born for trouble as readily as sparks fly up from a fire. I, I like that. It's like, will I face trouble in life? And the, the response is, do sparks fly up from a fire? Yeah. Um, John 16.33, Jesus says, Here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows. Some translations, you will have trouble. We will have trouble, yet God promises that when trouble comes, he is good and he is a strong refuge. He is close to those who trust in him. In 1527, a man by the name of Martin Luther uh, composed a song, and it's based on Psalm 46. Uh, It's probably, you're a little bit ahead of me there, Sandy. Um, It's based on Psalm 46. It's probably a song you've heard before. It's called, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And uh, Luther was a dissonant voice. At the time, he was one of the leaders of the Protestant Reformation, a movement that was calling out the Catholic Church because the Catholic Church was doing something called selling indulgences. And indulgences were basically you could go to church and buy a certificate that bought yourself and your friends out of hell. And and for the right price, you could you could get eternity guaranteed and uh, and they could build St. Peter's and some of their big uh, basilicas there. And, and so Luther was really upset about that. And so he wrote what we know as the 95 Theses. And he uh, tacked them to the, to the wall there in, um, in, in Germany. And uh, he called them out for this. Now, the Catholic Church didn't really like that. And this was a dangerous time to oppose the Catholic Church. Because they had the power and they had the influence to have people executed. And they did. Um, names like John Bradford, Thomas Hilton, Richard Bayfield, Robert Barnes... I looked it up. There are literally hundreds of Protestants who were executed in the 1500s because they took a stand against the Catholic Church and, um, and, and for 
holiness. And so to stand against the Holy Roman Empire was a very dangerous thing. And when Luther did this, he was ordered by the Holy Roman Empire to go to an assembly that they called the Diet of Worms. And it's not nearly as delicious as it sounds. Um, Worms is a, is a city in Germany, and it was this co- conference that they were bringing him to. And their purpose was they were going to make him recant his views. Recant what he had said. And so as Luther entered into the city of Worms, he's with his companions and they all together began to sing this song. A mighty fortress is our God. And they're singing this song because they know that they are walking into what could very well be their end. And he did not recant his views and he was labeled at the end of it a notorious heretic. But he took a stand for righteousness. And here's what Luther said. He said, we sing this psalm to the praise of God because God is with us and powerfully and miraculously preserves and defends his church and his word against all fanatical spirits, against the gates of hell and against, and against the implacable hatred of the devil and against the assaults of the world, the flesh and sin. And so he said, that's why we sing this. This is, uh, this is why we sing it. So here's what Psalm 46 says that he was quoting in this song. Psalm 46, 1. God is our refuge and our strength. Could I get, just right up until it feeds back and then just down a little bit. Uh, Psalm 46, 1. God is our refuge and strength, always ready to help in times of trouble. So if there are two key words here I want us to take away today, it's these. He is our refuge. He's strength. Refuge and strength. I, I love how it ends there, ever present. Um, I don't know if you ever have someone that's your go-to person when you're in need and when it goes straight to their voicemail and you're like, this is not the time to go straight to voicemail. When God is for us, he, our prayers do not go to his voicemail. He is ever-present. Praise God. But he is our refuge and our strength. Let's talk about refuge. In Psalm 46, 2 and 3, it says, So we will not fear when the earthquakes come. And the mountains crumble into the sea. Let the oceans roar and foam. Let the mountains tremble as the waters surge. The poet in this chapter is alluding to various kinds of natural disasters. He's talking about earthquakes, most likely volcanoes and landslides and floods. And these things mark our existence in this broken and sinful world. I mean, look at what's happened this week that we sent aid to. There are things that that are, are outside of our control. There are earthquakes and, and famines and things that occur that are, that are, that are beyond our control. In verse 9, our, our, our ability to control. In verse 9, he refers to elements of war and violence. And something they all hold in common is that they're things that we can't control. No matter how much hand-wringing we do. No matter how much worrying we do, um, we can't, they can't insulate us um, or, or disconnect us from what's going on, than the, the problems in the world. Um, it can't change our circumstances. If there is a natural disaster, if there is a war, if there is whatever might happen, worry and fret and our, even our efforts or our connectedness, maybe you've got connections, you can call someone, can't change that. There are things that we call great equalizers, right? No amount of money or influence or power can separate us from these things outside of our control. But yet, God is our refuge. This is the confidence that the psalmist is talking about. God is our refuge. Where do we run to when things are outside our control? God. Proverbs 18, 10, and 11. The name of the Lord is a strong fortress. The godly run to him and are safe. Get this. The rich think of their wealth as a strong defense. They imagine it to be a high wall of safety. Imagine it to be. But the righteous run to God. He is our place of safety. You see, the strongest, mightiest fortresses will fall. Empires will come and go, but our God will always be, church. Our God will always be. What does that mean, though, in the real world? How do we run to God? God isn't physical. 
You can't punch God's location into Google Maps and be like, time to run to God. Where's that at? So how, how do we run to God in our troubles? God's not a place. He's not a building. The Bible's clear. God is spirit, right? And so, so while God is spirit and not physical, he still is, however, a person in which we can confide in our troubles. He is, he is um, dependable on an... It's, it's, it's important that we don't just look at it as an emotional experience to, to, that we convey God's being our refuge. He's far more than just a feeling, okay? Um, when we run to God, we are appealing to a higher power. We are appealing to a real, genuine, real McCoy, higher power. When we run to God, um, it's, like, it's like taking things up with the manager. Um, I, I, don't, I don't do the Karen jokes, but, uh, you know, the can I talk to a manager jokes, you know? Um, but there, there's times where I really am like, okay, do you have a supervisor I could talk to? This, maybe they could help us out here. Maybe we could work together on getting this solved. Let me tell you, when we go to God, we're going to the highest authority. We are going to the one where he is the top of the food chain. He is, he is the one that we go to. He is the, the, the ultimate place to run to. So when we bring our concerns to God, and we're going to talk a little bit more about what this looks like since it's not a physical location, but we're talking about the personhood of God, what this does. Psalm 91 verse 2, it says, this I declare about the Lord. He alone is my refuge, my place of safety. He is my God and I trust him. So one of the things we do when we're talking about God being spirit, but yet we put our trust in here in him is it says, I declare what we speak has power. The words we say carry power. The words that we hear ourselves say and the words that other people hear us say have power. And so there's power behind the words we declare. And so the psalmist says this, I declare with my mouth what we hear. Proverbs 18.21 says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. We eat the fruit of what we say. So when we say God is our refuge, when we assert that and declare it, that we are actually bringing death or life in the power of our tongue. So when we say God is my refuge, I declare God is my refuge, we bring life into that situation. When we pray our worries and our concerns to him and declare that he is our refuge, it does something on the spiritual realm. On the spiritual level, there's something that happens. You see, God already knows our hearts. How many of us have ever thought, why am I even praying God already knows? Why do I even need to say this? If God is God, he knows what's in my head. He knows my concerns. But let me tell you, um, he might, he, Psalm 139 verse 4, even before there's a word on my tongue, you know it all, it says. It's true. God does know what we're, what we're worried about. But prayer and speaking our faith is as much a process in which we exercise our trust and then God reveals to us what's in our own hearts. It's a bending of our will around his and God's revealing our own hearts when we speak out. And so it's a process in which we're putting our hand into his when we speak out. And when we pray, it's the act that takes our heart's burdens and gives it action. Because it's just passive when we let it sit. When we let the worries sit there, um, we're, we're being passive. But we're taking proactive action when we're taking our heart's burdens and then taking them. And as the Bible talks about, ta- talks about it, casting it upon him. Those things that vex us, those things that worry us, those things that control our mind, we take them and cast our cares upon him. The book of 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 7 says, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. We can take our anxieties, our worries, our fears and cast them on him because he cares for us. And when God is our fortress, when we do that, we then have his peace. We read that part of John 16.33 earlier, but here's what the rest of it says. Remember John 16.33, he says, you're going to have a lot of trials and sorrows in this world. But here's the before and after. He says, I've told you all this so that you may have peace in me, in this world. 
You're going to have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. He says, I've done this so that you can have peace. Again, Jesus, in another place, Jesus says, peace I give to you, my peace I leave with you. Not the peace that the world knows. Trust in God, trust also in me. He says, there's a peace that passes all understanding that I want to give you. You can take heart. Like, like, like our brother Dan uh, Basildua said last Sunday, if you were here in the second service, the Lord spoke through him in a prophetic way. He said, um, we, need, we, we have a peace that we can give uh, thanks through every circumstance. Not just for every circumstance. How many of us know we've gone through circumstances? You're like, I'm not going to give thanks for this situation. But in it and through it, we can still give thanks. And we can be given a joy that this world can't give us. And the world can't take it away. How many of you want a joy that the world can't take away? It's something that the world can't find a way to give it to us. It's not artificial, but at the same time, it can't take away the true joy. And so God is our fortress. But then again, it says that he is also our strength. We don't always always have the strength to get through. Um, Something that's often attributed to the Bible, but it's definitely not in there. And I hope I don't offend you with this. It's that God will never give you more than you can handle. That is found in the book of Nowhere, chapter 0, verse nope. That's not in there. Um, it's most likely a misquote of 1 Corinthians 10, where, where Paul says, God is not going to allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. But, but let me tell you, there are situations you are not strong enough for, that I am not strong enough for. There, there are absolutely times where we are not enough. Psalm 73, verse 26 says, My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. When we aren't enough, when our strength fails, that's when we lean on Him. Maybe God allows us to pass through deep waters that we aren't strong enough to get through because it makes us lean on Him. It it forces us to say, I can't do this on my own. I need you, God. I love Matt Mayer's song, Lord, I Need You. There's a line in it that says, when I cannot stand, I'll fall on you. And for some of us, this is really freeing news to hear. Maybe you felt like you should be able to keep it together. There's like this pressure. Maybe you've taken that to be a real Bible verse that God will never give you more than you can handle. And you're like, I'm dealing with more than I can handle. I'm failing. And uh, could I get a little less keys? Um, And for you, you've gone, I'm taking on way more than I can handle. I'm, I'm taking on so much. I'm not strong enough. And it's been a weight on you. But let me tell you, this is freeing to say... It's true, you probably aren't strong enough. There's times it's so clear. But there's other times where you say, I think I am strong enough, but I'm depleted in my resource. And this illustration came to me this week. Forgive me if it's really stupid, okay? I apologize. Um, I'd like to blame it on someone else, but it was my thought. Um, I was shaving, and it was time to get a new razor blade. It was getting dull, and I replaced it. I was like, there's another $3, you know? And this this isn't an ad for Dollar Shave Club. I'm just, I was just, I was like, I can't believe this. This, this is steel, This is hardened steel right here, and I'm shaving tiny little whiskers, and somehow these things, within just a matter of a few days, can dull this hard steel. And if you put steel up against a a whisker any day, what's going to win? That steel, right? That, That razor blade. But what happens when it's hundreds and hundreds of hairs, and multiple, multiple shaves, and water, and all the things that go through it, what starts to happen? It degrades that blade. It breaks down little by little. And before you know it, it's dull, and you're getting nicks, and you're cutting yourself, and it's not getting through. And, and, and it's, it's broken down. And for you, you might say, I'm strong enough to handle the things I'm facing. 
But for you, it's not the size of the giant you're facing. It's the quantity. You've been tackling so many things. And it's just been wave after wave. And you're knocking them down with all you've got. You're just swinging away. And you're taking on all these things. But you are getting broken down because you might be stronger than that one thing. But there's so much. And you're just feeling the weight of it all upon yourself. So for some in this room, you might be facing something that's just too big. It might be cancer. It might be a family situation. It might be a job situation. And you literally don't have the answer. Or maybe you've been just knocking down flies like crazy, but you are just overwhelmed and you feel like you are being dulled and broken. And, and, and you say, this is, I, I, God, I, I can't do this. But you see, so often we insist on doing things on our own because we've trained ourselves to be self-reliant. That's what a good American is. But let me tell you, there's a good element to being self-reliant, but we need God more than anything. We shouldn't just, when we train ourselves to be self-reliant, what happens then when we come up against something that we do need to rest our, our trust in God on? We hold back. We say, I should be able to do this. I'm going to do this. And God says, give it to me. Cast your cares on me. But we've been doing everything else on our own strength. And so maybe in the small things, it's beginning to trust God for you. Thomas Manton said this, God will not exercise his power until we rest upon it. And so maybe you've been waiting for God to exercise his power, but you're going, all right, God, go ahead and fix this, but you just keep carrying it yourself. God, I really need you to help me here. Follow through. I need you to be my refuge. I need you to be my strength. I got this. 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 And God's saying, are you going to cast your cares upon me? Are you going to trust me? And today, now is the time to say, God, I need you to be my refuge. So my question for you is, where is your source of security when you face uncertainty? Has it been something you've built yourself? And maybe it's been really good. Like the people of Nineveh, you've, you've built something up, but you've realized it's not impenetrable. It's not indestructible as you thought. Or maybe you're tired and you've been broken down. Psalm 3 verse 3 says, But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. You're my glory and you're the lifter of my head. This morning he wants to lift your head. There's a video from a game the Ducks lost. I don't want to talk about it, but it was a basketball game the Ducks lost several years ago. They were playing UCLA and one of the UCLA players made a bad play and he was just slumped over running down the court and his teammate ran over to him, grabbed him by the chin and held his head up. And they came back and beat us. So there's that. But this morning, God wants to lift your head. Maybe you have been downcast. You've been beating yourself up for failing, for, for dropping the ball, for not being strong enough. Let me tell you, he's here to lift your head. Right now, can I ask our pastors and our elders to come forward? We're going to spread across the front. And I intentionally ended early today because I want us to have an opportunity to come respond to Jesus. Can we stand together, church, as they come forward right now across this room? Just across, Let's all stand together. We're going to spend a few moments in worship. But right now, I want to give you the opportunity. If you have been in the battle, maybe there's something that feels overwhelming. Maybe it's been the quantity that's been overwhelming. And you say, I have been trying to do this on my own. And right now, I need to run to the one who is my fortress, my deliverer, my strength. And I need prayer. We pray every week. Our, our elders do every single week at 6 a.m. for the things that come in on the prayer report, prayer request cards, and I'm glad you send those in, but do you know what 
the New Testament says is that if anyone is sick, they need to come before the elders of the church and have their hands laid on them that they may be healed. And so right now, this is the time where we can obey in complete obedience to God and come forward and have your, uh, yourself be prayed over by these elders. If there's something emotionally, spiritually, whatever it might be, let me tell you, they, these are men and women of God that care deeply for your souls. So right now, we're going to respond in worship. And if you need prayer, I invite you to come forward. We're going to spend time pursuing Jesus. There's one last verse I want to give you. It says this, Psalm 91, verse 4. He will cover you with his feathers. He will shelter you with his wings. His faithful promises are your armor and your protection. This morning, he wants to cover you with his wings. Like a mother bird bringing her, her, her chicks in and covering them with his, her wings. Right now, he wants to cover you. Psalm 46 ends with this word. It's a word we don't use in English. It's selah. And selah means to pause, to breathe. And right now, maybe you've just been going, going, going. It's time to pause and to breathe and to say, Jesus, I trust you. So I invite you to come right now. Let's come pray and let's worship together.
Jesus, we thank you that you are the way maker. You're the miracle working God. Even when we can't see it, we believe that you're working. Even though we can't feel it, we know that you are at work. And so, God, I pray that we would run to the Father. That we would continue to learn to run to the tower who is our strength and our refuge. And that, Father, that you would remind us over and over again, it's not by might, not by power, but by your spirit, O Lord of hosts. And we give you thanks, Lord. Go with us this day. As we go into this week, give us opportunities to share the love of Christ with each person we come into contact with. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you, New Life Church. Be blessed. Have a wonderful, wonderful week. We'll see you next Sunday.